Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. I think my internet's been slower the last few weeks for some reason, like at home, on my phone, everything just seems like it slowed down. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe all the servers are just have more people on them since everybody was off for a break. They were like mm-hmm. playing. Yeah, there's still, I would say there's still at least 25 milliseconds between you and me uh, over the internet. Oh, wow. More. I can't even get my stopwatch to go that fast. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so now that we've already had like half of a podcast not recording. Yeah. We thought we'd finally turn it on here and get excited Woo! about Woo-hoo. our day. New year, new us. <laughs> new, ooh, it is a new year. I'm, uh, that means I only have three months worth of screwing up that date on all of my checks and everything else yep. I write, and then I'll be fine. <laughs> I don't know. This feels uh, like 2020 part two or 2019 part three. <laughs> Wait, no, I'm not counting it right. It's, it's 2020 part winter. three. <laughs> 2020 part three. 20, yeah, yeah. Whew. I can't, wh- not that, I don't remember when it was. I had to write a check for something, which is rare anymore. Mm-hmm. And I started to write 19 something in the year. Not a check. It was assigning something. And I had and the date. I wrote 19 something. I don't remember what I wrote, like 1981. I think I wrote my birthday yep. year. And I was like, uh <laughs> and then <laughs> the other I remember the other person just laughing. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Guy. <laughs> like, I'm old. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh, sorry. I needed to get a drink of coffee there. <sighs> so what do you got going on lately? Anything exciting? You were just uh, talking about rust. Yeah. Yeah. I'm learning some of that for my, my new job. And, uh, I say learning some of that. I did some of that before, uh, like for, for a brief period. I've also just kind of followed it for a while. Um, but uh, but really, really trying to dig into it because we we have not we don't have performance problems right now, but we will really soon. Um, um, give me just a second. I've got to deal with cats. Oh, <laughs> OK, that's fine. It's they're part of the show. It's the cat cast. They're now part of the show. Yeah. But we you know, we're, we're looking heavily at at uh, Wasm to implement some core parts of the app and, uh, and then do some on the server side too. But, uh, you know, an interesting thing I learned recently, and I, I guess I had kind of known this for a while, um, but uh, it really, the, the stuff that I was trying to learn uh, really drove it home is that, uh, you know, Rust has these four loops and they are, uh, sugar over iterators. So like you can, you can, um, pass an, uh, a type to the, to the for loop. So like you say, so for X in Y, um, if Y has this into iterator trait defined for it, um, then it will, uh, iterate over that, over that input, um, automatically. So you can do the for loop, but you can also do the sort of thing we expect kind of in elixir where you do uh you know you, you take a, a a type that implements in the enumerable protocol and and then call 
enum functions on it um, and pipe them together. So you can also sort of do that kind of thing, like method chaining type thing in Rust, which I guess brings us back to what we were thinking about talking about. There's an interesting proposal on, on the Elixir forum about for loops in Elixir. It's talked about a lot too. Yeah. I can't even read through the whole thread. I was I was following along on the email, and the Elixir forum thread, as of right now, has a hundred and nine messages in it. Yep. So there's some there's some serious uh, serious discussion going on. Should we summarize it for for our our friends of the show? Sure. You want to do that, or you want me? To sure. Do that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, awesome. So, because <laughs> I've, it's, I responded on the original thread, but have not said anything on this one. Yeah. So, so we, hopefully, most people who are listening to the podcast have used for loops on Elixir. Um, they're not really loops, uh, they are uh, a special form in the compiler, basically like a macro with special privileges um, that, uh, that generates. Um, <laughs> Some code. Um, <laughs> yes, I feel about it that way. She's too, not Kat. happy about this. <laughs> no, she's not happy about this proposal either. <laughs> um, but uh, they they generate uh, code that is mostly reduce. And this is really not the best time to record this podcast. Ah, Sorry, folks. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> We have we have multiple cats passing back and forth in front of the screen. I think yeah. every time you just keep going, like I don't say anything, but every time that one passes, I'm gonna go cat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so so four, uh, uh, you know, you you specify some generators with that left facing arrow. So you like you can do things like uh, you know cross product of two collections. Um, you can do uh, filters, you can do reduces with it, um, and all sorts of things like that. And it basically, you know, the compiler turns it into enum reduce. And, um, and it's like a really nice way to express those sorts of things that might be messier uh, to, I say messier, because I don't, I don't want to make a value judgment about what is more elegant or not. Um, that, that is one of the problems i think with this proposal that we'll get to but uh the idea is that you can make something that has l fewer syntactical elements to it to express you know an iteration over some collections that that does something with those collections so what the proposal is is that uh sometimes you want to uh if you ever you if you've ever used that function map reduce in the enum module Mm -hmm. uh, where you're where you're you're doing something on each element of the collection, but you're also collecting something about the entire collection as you as you flow through. Um, it's it sort of would support that, but also while flattening. Um, so it's called for let, and the idea is that you would uh, the very first part of your for expression. Uh, would have let and then some variable binding in it. So like, so you want to do sum up the elements that are even in your collection of numbers, collection of integers. So you would say for let sum equals zero and then comma and then X comes from your collection, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And and then what that that particular expression implies is that inside the loop, so inside the do end, sum is a variable that is bound in that in that that scope. Um, and that you return sum as part of the um, the last expression in your loop. So um, it's sort of like having an accumulator if you're doing reduce. Uh, it's, it's just mm-hmm. that it kind of becomes an implicitly bound variable. You don't have a, like some kind of match expression. And I think that the motivation there, it, it comes from a good place. Uh, my, my main concerns are really that now you have something implicit mm-hmm. that it's not exactly clear where it comes from or w- what, what should happen with it when it's inside that scope. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, also you, you, you're somewhat changing the semantics of the for loop in that like, well, it, it's, sort of, it's sort of contextual rather than more clear. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's like, do yeah. you have a let or not? Uh, if, if you have a let, then you have this variable and you have to run a t- return a two tuple that has the accumulator as the second, you know, <clears throat> uh, or if you don't, then it's just the accumulator. Like it becomes, I think becomes quite confusing. Yeah. I, so I, I just approach the problem differently than here. And I, I have a little bit of a, a I think a similar to what what you're talking about being your problem with it. Yeah, I don't think we should get into the talk of elegant because I think that's kind of subjective uh, and I'm right and nobody else is. So um, (laughs) when it comes to elegance, not really. Uh, Most of the things I write are not elegant and at least the stuff I wrote yesterday. Today, me feels pretty elegant about what I'm doing, but yesterday, me didn't know what he was doing at all. Anyway, it's tangent. Is when I use MapReduce, Deuce. I'm just going to go with that. So, well, so if I, if I have this for loop, what I find frequently when I have things like this, like, let's say that you, you want to step through something and maybe at the same time, get a count and a sum, and you want to adjust the current values there, right? So you're, mm-hmm. you're getting right now we're we're getting three things out of an adjustment and then two other data points, I guess is what I'm going to call it. A sum and a, an account. Right. And like the nice thing about that is I don't have to loop over multiple times to figure it out. That's, that's really helpful when, whenever you, that's often what I, where I end up seeing MapReduce is where I see things that are looped over multiple times. I'm like, let's just jam this all into one. But what happens there in my experience is that now there's some other thing that you want to collect or another thing that you want to do. And it starts to grow and it grows in this one block of code and sometimes isn't always clear exactly what's happening. It becomes hard to maintain. So I frequently will create another data structure and some functions to call for collecting each one of these things. And then the code is actually really clear at that point without having this extra let section Mm -hmm. of your four. Um, And I feel like it's hard to step away from, from an imperative mindset when you've done it forever. We kind of talked about this before the show too. And, and 
like, I think adding imperative things back into the language is going to make it even harder for people to step outside of that imperative mindset. There's already a lot within Elixir that I think puts people into an imperative mindset frequently. Pipes is one of them. Uh, I'm not against pipes. And you can write non-imperative code with pipes, but it looks imperative. But then I guess at the same time, though, how is that different from things like, you know, monads? People use monads to think write things that look more imperative because it's easier for us to think that way sometimes. So I'm I'm torn about it because of that. Because like I I look at that while monads are trying to make things more imperative, these other things are trying to make things more imperative because it's easier for us to think that way. But I think the maintainability of this as we go forward, I think it's going to create less maintainable code. That's my concern and cause people to even less learn about functional programming and the powers that we get from that. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Uh, And I was, as you were talking, I was thinking of a couple of, uh, you mentioned monads, Uh, you know, obviously Haskell has that, that sort of special notation. Uh, for for it's not really uh, it's imperative in the same sense that pipes in elixir are imperative like they're chaining operations mm-hmm. um but uh the the other one that came to mind was um was ocaml so ocaml is very much like in the same syntactical flavor as haskell um but it's it's eager um so it it doesn't have that whole lazy evaluation thing that gets so confusing at times um Mm -hmm. it also has much simpler type system uh but one of the things that it has that was surprising to me when i first picked it up was it has uh it has mutable variables like you have to explicitly say this thing is mutable um i think they call them references or ref cells or something like that um but it's sort of that escape hatch that people want to reach for uh, to to make something that um, you know just isn't going to be have as good performance in a functional style as it would in an imperative style. Uh, maybe that's sort of it, it's not not exactly what what they're reaching for here. You can't. Well, I won't say you can't. It would be very difficult, cumbersome, and expensive to implement that same sort of thing on top of Elixir that OCaml has. But I think mm-hmm. what, what they're trying to go for here is, is that feeling of you have a, a loop variable that is specific to the loop um, that you can change the value of in each iteration. Um, and I don't, I, I kind of don't like that very much. Um, I, I, I'm also thinking back to like you you could go the the opposite direction. Um, back when I was doing a lot of Erlang, I really tried hard to encourage my my coworkers to use things like in the lists module or use list comprehensions or you know or use use fold wherever they could. But some people just liked making self-recursive functions that had a bunch of arguments to them. And one of them being a list that you popped the head off of and like did something with, and then called, you know, called the the same function again with the tail. And, you know, that's, that's a different kind of way to make things really confusing. 
um, because, <laughs> and, and, and I think it, I think it has to do with you've intertwined the concepts of performing the iteration and what you do in each step of the iteration. And this is like the same problem, but in reverse, right? Like you, you've, I don't know. I, I have, I have major, major reservations about it. I understand the motivation. Like I get where it's coming from. It's coming from a genuine place, but I, I'm very concerned that it sends the community in a weird direction. Like yeah. Sense, I feel like it's going to syntax. Yeah. Gonna. It, yeah. <laughs> it changes a lot of things in my, and then like scoping is a little different. Right. It, and then what if, can I have a let variable that shadows the outside scope? Do Does the compiler have to deal with that now? Does that get confusing? Like, when can I name a variable something? When can I not? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, and, and then right, right in the problem statement, you know, I, Jose is, is saying, Hey, I'm going to compare that to the Elixir solution, which he prefers. So yeah. it's like, like I prefer this other solution anyway. So how can we make the other solution that is preferred by, I would say by me too. Not, I don't think it's just a Jose thing. He's awesome. I don't know. He's the be all end all, nor does he want to be. Uh, um, but is there a way to make that solution itself maybe a little more clear? Uh, are, without, are, you, are you talking without. about the the reduce option? Yeah, he's um, doing the yeah. map reduce option. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean like the enum map reduce? But there's also this yeah. like trailing option you can put on for loops. It's like reduce, and oh, then you yeah. give a initial value of that accumulator, and then you I've match the accumulator coming in. Yeah. I've only ever used that once. I always have like just. I think. I think I. Mm, yeah, I, I just end up using the enum functions. Hmm. I pretty much use the for, I guess I, I use it when I need to generate things or in views. If I'm hmm. working in Phoenix and I need to write right. something in a view, I'll use it. But other than that, like I, I reach for the enum functions first. They're my, they're my go-to. And then the for loop is my mainly generation. Like if I need to, you know, do a list comprehension, that's, that's where I'm going and that's about it. And I don't know, maybe I'm not doing enough of it. If I'm not using the reduce, (laughs) maybe I should (laughs) force myself to use it for a little while so I can talk more intelligently about it. Yeah. And I I think I've used it a few times. Um, The, the part where it fell apart for me was, was realizing that basically nobody else who I worked with used that <laughs> and that I might be able to express things as using enum reduce. Now, here, here's, a, here's another interesting thing that, that may have come out of that, um, that, or at least in my mind, it, it, it brings to the front that like those generators in the for loop, so like the left facing arrows, they're not like, I'm going to use this word in the general sense, not in the OO sense, but they're not objects in the language. They're not, they're not things. They're syntactical forms that represent something mm-hmm. that the for special form will generate. 
but they're not things in themselves. It's not like when you do, you know, X comes from Y, you know, X left arrow Y, that that becomes an iterator. Like there's, there's no, there's no like data type that's created from that. Mm -hmm. It's just telling the four special form to draw from that iterator as part of its reduce that it generates. Now, here, here's the fun thing. If those actually were things, or even if there was a macro that said, I'm going to give you a bunch of generators, turn that into an iterator, then it gets really interesting, I think. Because even if you had like the, the filters on it, because then you have a data type that you could pipe to enum reduce. And then this whole like, what is the initial accumulator thing is, and how do you bind it? Is, is no longer confusing. You would lose the four, you know, that sort of like reduced number of parentheses syntax thing. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but, but like, if that's the only thing that you're trying to accomplish, I, it doesn't seem that valuable to me. Yeah, that I actually see it, if that's the only thing you're trying to accomplish, to be more cumbersome and not mm -hmm. to the language but to teams of people working on it, right? If, right. if I'm going to use re MapReduce and you're going to use a for loop and sometimes you're going to use a for loop with reduce or for loop with let or a for loop with into, and now there's like all these different ways to do it and they look different. They're not just a little different. They look a lot different. Mm -hmm. Now somebody coming into the language, a new person joining a project that they might be really excited because they've heard good things about the beam and, and elixir or then they hop in and now there there's confusion. Like, when do I do that? And when do I, when do I use the for loop? When do I use map reduce? Why are these different? Are they different? What's the outcome difference? How, mm -hmm. how does this affect me at the end of the day? If they're not any different other than syntax is, is it worth it? Uh, to add that level of confusion. And I don't yeah. know, I think it makes it harder to get new people in mm -hmm. versus simpler. It's not a simple solution. It, you know, like to me, it doesn't feel simpler. Right. And I keep thinking back to, you know, Osterhout's philosophy software design book. Like, um, you know, what, what is the value of an abstraction? Can, can you map that abstraction to the behavior that you want. And I think this is where this proposal is, is struggling is like, it is, do, does the syntactical form adic adequately reflect the behavior? And if there's too many, too many things in there, um, it does get confusing. Now, like I could, I could contrast this to, again, to, to Erlang, you know, I mentioned, I, I would, uh, cat. Yep. Cat. Um, I, I encourage my <laughs> colleagues to use list comprehensions when they could, um, instead of, you know, manually iterating over a list via a mutual recursion, um, tail recursion is the word I want. Sorry. Now the, the flip side of list comprehensions, you know, which would be the most analogous to what four does in Elixir is that you can only do so many things in, in, in the, the right side of the comprehension. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, what I liked about it is it made really explicit that what you were returning from that expression was a list because the entire expression is inside the list brackets, right? The square brackets. Yeah. So 
Uh, but that is one thing that may be surprising to people coming to Elixir from some other language that might have for loops is that, you know, for is actually an expression. It returns a value. Um, mm-hmm. You can choose to ignore that value that's returned, but it actually returns a value. Usually a list, if you're using into, it may return something else that, you know, implements the collectible protocol. Um, but uh, but like just looking at a for loop, you would think, oh, I'm I'm you, I'm flipping through the these collections to take some side effect. Um, yeah. instead of oh, this you know whatever the the last expression is inside the do end block is actually the the value of that corresponds to that iteration. Um, and and that that is that is confusing. Whereas if this were a list comprehension, you have the brackets around it. You're like, oh, this kind of looks like a list. You know, I've got these generator things going on. This left hand side, you know, is like I took from those generators and like constructed some value. But I, I can tell probably that this is a list because it has those square brackets around it. Okay, so when you were talking there about. I don't remember exactly your wording, so I'm not going to repeat it because it's going to mess it up. But uh, what you were saying like makes me even more think that this lets are oh, it was that the fact that that you it makes it more look like you're looping over and and changing something and not returning right. if you have these let variables in there because now I might expect them to be available after the loop without having to do anything special. And I don't remember in this proposal if how that worked, if they were, how you could draw them out of that loop. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the, my impression was that they are an accumulator and you have to return them at some point, like in, inside each iteration of the loop. And so the resulting value that is returned from the for expression includes that accumulator somehow. So. And then you got to know the order of which they're included. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I, I feel like now I need to go back and read it again because I remember reading through here and not thinking about that until you just talked about it. And now, now, I, now I need to know. Like if I have three lets, am I going to get like a tuple with my whatever the last thing of the oh, loop? And, and then yeah, I think a that list was the of other three thing. lets or and what order are they in? I assume when I declared them in or... Yeah, I think you can have only one let, which is the other thing that's a little bit surprising. Oh, I thought, okay. Hmm. I thought in the proposal that there was more than one, but. You know, it's funny. Um, I think, uh, I know it definitely, Rust also has a let in this kind of four position. I think it's in four position. My, it definitely works in if statements, if expressions, excuse me. Uh, but then it acts like a match. <laughs> So like you only take that branch if if the the pattern on the left hand side following your let matched, um, but this is not the case with with the proposal that that Jose mm-hmm. has has put out. I think it has four let. Hmm. It sounds um, like neither of us are super excited about it. Yeah, it, <laughs> I, I kind of was was hoping that it would be really something that I would like. Um, but I, I read it and I was, I just felt really not good about it. Yeah. I feel like that there's more questions. I don't know. I, I mean, I will always say it's, it's not 
my language, right? Like mm-hmm. it's out there for the world. And and if this is what the world's after, or if Jose says, yeah, we should put this in the core, then that's what it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to like blow off and be like, I'm out of here. But I, I think that it puts us in less of a clear place and less of a good place than it is one let you can put like a tuple in it. Yep. Yeah. Right. I did look, I had to look, I couldn't stop reading until I found it. <laughs> yeah. I, and the other thing that bugged me about the discussion there, um, not, not just the proposal itself, but there was a lot of, uh, of painting the bike shed in that thread. It's like, well, do you want to use let, you know, let has all these implications in other languages. Should we use bind or binding, you know? And, and like in the end that, that doesn't matter to me as much because I think if, if if you choose something and you document it well enough and you explain it well enough, people will accept it eventually, even if it, it goes well, you know, in this other language, they use this word to mean this other thing. Yeah. And I'm familiar with that other thing. So therefore this thing is confusing. Like, I think that's, that's not a, that's not a valid argument. I've and, used that argument though. <laughs> <laughs> now there's like, it's just still like really ways to make things really badly named. Uh, but I, I mean, if there's a known like term for something mm-hmm. that is across multiple languages with people you're using it in discussions, then I try to say, if we're going to add that feature, we should probably use the same term. I think identity was one mm-hmm. of them as I was like, why don't we just use identity? <laughs> Cause that's what it like is in other languages. And there was one other one. So I, yes, I agree, but I also don't want to, I just, I don't want to pick a term that would be confused with something else. That's, that would be my bigger concern. Don't pick a term that's already used to mean something very different. I don't know that let is, it does have implications in other languages, but there's, I don't feel like it's a lot different than the Mm -hmm. implication here. Maybe it yeah, is. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. <laughs> I, I would almost be tempted to say, why don't we make it a cumbersome word so that people won't use it? <laughs> like, make it accumulate, <laughs> which is not only long, but hard to type. Yeah. The real name of Bangkok. Whatever that is. I don't remember what it is. Bangkok's not the name of Bangkok. Oh, oh right. See, look, now we're <laughs> switching <laughs> subjects. And I'm not going to try to say it. It's, it's, they... The name of Bangkok is learned by children, just like in the U.S. We learn the alphabet. Okay, it's a song because it's that long. It's really long. Oh, so so it's so it's a shortened name. I don't even know if you say Bangkok in the whole thing. I think it's yeah, it's like a nickname for the city or, or like an acronym or something. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's really long. They just knew that us Americans could never learn it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Is there more to say on this? Like, I feel like at that point I'm just beating a dead horse and being a jerk. Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to be a jerk either. So we we can just yeah. let it lie now. <laughs> so how, so now you're you writing Rust at work? Some are, are you? Yeah, are you on the rewrite it in Rust train yet? No, like I, I mean, eventually. Uh, <laughs> I plan on getting on board. <laughs> well, <laughs> the the thing is, like, it, we will never completely rewrite this thing in Rust. 
it's mm-hmm. it's browser based. Like there's always going to be JavaScript at some level. Like we're using TypeScript, but you know at some level, like that's what runs on the browser. It, it's not like you can you can put everything in Wasm. It just doesn't work that way. Right. Um, and that might not even be valuable. The things we're we're kind of concerned about right now for the long term are because the product is about animation. We want to have smooth playback of your animation mm-hmm. and the state management of you know computing each frame of the the man the uh, animation causes a lot of gc um on every frame uh especially in those you know you have a ton of objects flying around in your animation or with a bunch of effects that produces a bunch of objects that get thrown away after that frame and and that that gets kind of expensive uh so we're we're trying to think about that really hard and and also the the big win and I don't know it's it's sort of I'm unconvinced that it will be completely successful but partly because I've I've seen attempts where people want to have JavaScript running you know the same code on the front end as in the back end uh, yeah. isomorphic which I hate that term it's not isomorphic it's just <laughs> running on it's it's portable it's running on two different platforms I think the idea is that we could increase our compute throughput. Uh, by having some of the same things written in Rust that run on the front end as run in the back end. It's like if we're going to do high quality render uh, of an animation, you know, out to video or like, you know, motion ping or something like that, then, you know, having that code work in both places would be nice. Um, well, being able to have it on the back end, you, you control the hardware and you know the performance. Mm-hmm. That's been the biggest thing that I've ever had to deal with when working on stuff on the front end or on on edge computing is if you don't control that resource at the end point it may be the slowest thing ever and it may not work that well with with yep. what you did and then then you get bug reports where they're like it's slow and you're like well you're you're running on a 486 yes it's slow <laughs> <laughs> who runs on a 486 anymore <laughs> nobody i just this is like the slowest slowest thing i could pop into my head immediately (laughs) maybe you should hit the turbo button (laughs) (laughs) you know i read about the turbo button uh yesterday recently nice yeah um so as as part of this i'm you know i'm new to graphics in a lot of ways i'm new to like how you organize these things so i got this i put it on my wish list and i and uh, my wife bought it for me for christmas this is i'll show it to you our poor was this the book you said you were you started reading yesterday uh, no, this is a different book, but um, oh, it's it's called Game Engine Architecture, oh, and nice. it is, is thirteen hundred pages. <laughs> Jeez, um, that is so so. Like the I, first never, six I no six, longer want to write games engines no. ever. Like <laughs> I, <laughs> there's a lot of C plus plus specific stuff in there, but like I'm looking for concepts and techniques and things. you know, there's uh, a bunch of people who are just like, well, I'd do it in Rust, and then there's another set of people who are like, I would use Zig. So <laughs> yeah, well, like, those 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 groups of people should fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that. It's like the Thunderdome. Yeah. Anyway, book. Oh Tell me yeah. So so this this book I've been I've been trying to read to. Um, un- understand like how how you would put together systems that have to produce graphics. So like not necessarily you know how do you work with OpenGL? Like I can read a manual for that. You know the the other. Um, it's more like how do you organize 
your code that represents the the graphics uh, so that it's efficient and like what are the problems that you might have to tackle and and I I forgot why I brought that up now but there there's a lot of interesting stuff in there about the mathematics um, so like you know vectors and matrices all the linear algebra that you need to know and uh, and then also there's lots of stuff about you know me- measuring time measuring performance um, and uh, like God, there's a whole bunch of things about memory allocators uh, but these are all sorts of things that we might have to think about with with rust um, when we're when we're trying to implement you know a back-end render as well as a front-end render and one of the things that we we've been thinking about for a long time apparently I say we like this is my second month on the job it's still we it's still we. it's still we uh, <laughs> is is Any problems um, that you create affect all of them so <laughs> yeah is like how do you determine when when you have one of those low spec machines like could you offload the rendering to the back end mm-hmm. and then just ship them images now like there, there's trade-offs there like can you actually first of all render it fast enough to send those images to the client when they play back you know there, there's there's timing issues like what if you have audio attached to the animation um, so there's lots of problems we still have to like think about there, but we are and not completely you, in rewrite it in Rust. If that's if that's if we're coming back full circle, we're not completely rewrite it in Rust. This is like figure out if Rust is going to work. Do some prototypes. Like maybe six months down the road, we have something. That sounds like I don't know your your new job sounds very interesting because it's something far outside of anything I've ever done. Too, there's so much to learn. I'm really I'm I just want to hear like every time you learn something new, just. Just tell me about it, all right? Because I'll live vicariously through you in this deal. Case. You got a deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I kind of got to get out of here. Okay. Coming up soon. Actually, wait, one more thing, because we, we teased it a little bit. What's the other book that you, were, that you got yesterday? Oh, this one is a book that I wish I had picked up a year ago. You know, when we were doing a bunch of break up the monolith stuff uh, mm-hmm. at my previous job. It's called Kill It With Fire, and it's about modernizing legacy systems. And uh, the author did a bunch in, like, she worked for the U.S. Digital Service, you know, updating, like, mainframe applications. And there's a lot of really sage advice in that book. And maybe, maybe we can talk about it more next time. But, like, I, it re- it's really easy to read, um, first of all, which is, like, kind of what I want in the evenings. I don't want... It's kind of hard to end my workday having done a bunch of technical stuff and then go read something that's super technical and not have it put me asleep yeah. or drive me crazy. So that that book, uh, it, it's very much at the like at the level of uh, you know technical lead or engineering manager or architect, and it, it's not talking too much about specifics, but you know, exam, example she gives in the book of of how legacy systems affect what we do nowadays is like why do we have 80 column you know line length standards you know some of it is that well it's kind of hard to read past a certain number of columns Mm -hmm. but it really goes back to punch cards which before that go back to some other system (laughs) yep and uh and so yeah it's it's uh it's really interesting to see see some of those stories and uh, 
and also like recognize the things that she talks about in the book having happened over the last year um, in that project that I was previously working on at my, my previous job. I might have to pick it up. Kill it with fire. Yeah. It's, I think it's yeah. only like 200 pages or so. Oh, Big nice. type, short pages. Love it. Sweet. <laughs> I, I have a goal of 24 books this year. I did 21 last year. And so my goal this year is 24. And uh, sometimes that takes some really quick, yeah. simple reads to get through. Because I also have the goal of, I'm actually going to finish behind Human Error this year. Wow. Uh, and if I'm going to read 23 other books along with that book, I better hurry up and get through that book too, because mm-hmm. otherwise I'll just read one book this year and it'll be that one. <laughs> it's not yeah, hard I, to read. I don't know why. Like, I feel like I've started it 15 times and I don't know when, one day I'll get through it all. It's a great book. Me too. It's there's interesting stories in it. Yeah. Sorry, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> one day I'll actually read it. All yeah, right. well, me too. <laughs> well, I better get out of here. Thanks for Good talking to you as always, Amos. Hanging out with me today. I'll yeah. talk to you later. Bye. Bye.